Well, last week, as we concluded chapter 1, we saw in verse 27 how Paul makes a rapid transition from his own circumstances to those of his beloved congregation. Enough about me, let's talk about you. And so Paul sets in motion a, a, a protracted section of this book where he's trying to elaborate on what does it mean for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of God in such a way that we're living worthily of the gospel. In our passage today, Paul continues that line of thought, except this time he brings the need for unity closer to home. Last week, the need for unity was presented as as a way of defending against and advancing against outside external threats. In this passage, in these verses, we see that the need for unity is because of the internal threats that exist when disunity and selfish interest run amok. This passage, all 11 verses of it, is a call to unity, and the key to unity is personal humility. Personal humility. Humility is a concept that we're familiar with. Many people in our culture will, on the one hand or out of one side of their mouths, speak of the importance of being humble, yet on the other hand or out of the other side of their mouth, well, we think we're all that in a bag of chips, don't we? Don't we? I found an interesting uh, quote, it kind of struck me funny, uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Oscar Wilde, and he was an Irish playwright, an author, he visited the U.S. And he, and he got to customs, and they asked him if he had anything to declare. Only my genius. Wow. Wow. And we all know about French pride, all right? I mean, the French are, are famously arrogant, right? And... Uh, Charles de Gaulle, you know, after the war, if, you want, if, if uh, you want to hear France's opinion, I'll tell you. And going back even further, Jacques Rousseau, who was an Enlightenment philosopher, he said these words, I rejoice in myself. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, they would have erected statues to me. And we think, oh, that's pretty brazen. Oh. But consider the number of people in our society, celebrities of all stripes, who go around publicly just basking in a self-sense of awareness, in this sense of, of awesomeness. And we do it so often, though we don't say it so brazenly. Many times by the way we tune people out, by the way we pretend to hear them, but we're only thinking of how we're going to respond, we really do all too often, unfortunately, operate out of a mindset that I'm all that. You don't really have anything to teach me. Let me tell you. Indeed, many of us we wholeheartedly buy into that notion of if you've got it, flaunt it. Whether it's our money, 
whether it's our intelligence, whether it's our appearances, whether it's our opinions, our expertise, we flaunt it. And it's not a modern phenomenon. Pride, that arrogant spirit, it's, it's as old as human nature. One of the things that I find interesting, though, is how revolutionary the biblical concept of humility was. You know, we, we are... We're a culture that even though it's rapidly rejecting and, 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 and distancing ourselves from our, our Christian heritage, nonetheless, the language of humility exists, and we basically know it's a positive thing. But in the first century, that was not the case. In the Greco-Roman world, the word humble was used. It wasn't a new word that was invented by Christians. It was used. But did you know that it was always used in a pejorative sense? I've read the principal works of Aristotle. I've read everything by Plato. I've read Zeno. I've read Cicero. And they all have ethical lists. And did you know that every single one of those great philosophical minds omitted humility as a virtue? And so here comes Paul telling people to be humble. And so with a Christian message of humility as a virtue was quite countercultural, quite revolutionary. Indeed, humility as a Christian virtue is essential to us modeling Christ modeling the unity of the Trinity, and indeed accomplishing our mission on this earth. Humility is essential for togetherness. I don't think anyone said it more plainly than John Chrysostom. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He's famous as being one of the best preachers of the early church. And Chrysostom said uh, in the late 300s, when he was preaching through this passage, he said this, there is nothing more foreign to our blessed religion than arrogance. There is nothing more foreign to our blessed religion than arrogance. But my, oh my, we've all seen how self-importance and arrogance and pride, how it poisons relationships. We've seen what happens in churches when people pursue their own agendas. It creates, it creates division. It tears at walls. Of, it tears the whole structure down. Now in this passage, in verses 5 through 11, I mean, it contains in verses 5 through 11 what is arguably the most studied passage in the church's history. Verses 5 through 11 were essential as the church formulated its position and articulated orthodoxy against one heresy after another, especially in the first centuries of the church. This passage is important. This passage is rich. This passage is full of nuance. And it would be the height of arrogance for me to suggest that in 130 
minute sermon that I'm going to plumb the depths of these verses more deeply than has been done in 2,000 years by the best minds in our church. So I want to right now wholeheartedly encourage you these words and this passage are crucial to our faith. So please go home and Google. You can look at them online. They're free available online. But the works of the greats like Athanasius or the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, or Gregory of Nazianzus, these great minds helped the church navigate the turbulent waters of the first few centuries. And they helped the church understand more what these verses mean for who Jesus is and who He is to us. So please, dig deep. The deeper you plumb the Word of God, the more accurately you see Him and the more accurately you see yourself. And that is the foundation for humility. One of the things that's most amazing to me is that if you look at this passage, Paul's ethical guidance to us, the thing Paul, Paul is wanting to accomplish for us is in verses 2 through 4. 2 through 4. And we're going to look at those words. Now, the reason that's amazing to me is that when you think of a building or any sort of structure, you understand that it needs to be built on a foundation. But we typically don't really pay the foundation any mind. It's the edifice that's created on top of the foundation that we usually consider to be the great and amazing, beautiful thing. But in this passage, the great, the amazing, the beautiful thing are verses 5 through 11 which serve as the foundation for what Paul is wanting us to do in verses 2 through 4. In other words, the grand mystery and insight we get here into the person and nature of Jesus Christ is brought forth to bear in the service of your unity. Think about that. Is that not humbling? That the grandeur and greatness of Christ is the foundation upon which we stand. Let that humble us. We stand on a precious, precious foundation. It is awesome. All right. So Paul wants us to be unified. That's the gist of this passage. You could just sum it up with that. Be unified, right? And he says in verse 2, Complete my joy. Complete my joy. And I think parents get that. You know, I mean, think about it. You have multiple kids, and is it not the case? Or, you know, maybe my house is different. But there's so much between these kids. You know, I just want you all to get along. That's bliss. When the kids are getting along, it's, it's, it's just sublime. And that's where Paul's at here. Complete my joy. Be a one mind. In other words, get along, guys. Make my day. Paul wants it for his church, and it may seem a little bit self-serving, but I can tell you that, that, your, that your church officers just want you to get along. It makes us real happy. 
And so that's where Paul's going with this. Complete my joy. I love you guys, and I'm invested in you. I just want you to get along, all right? You hate it when you see two people that you love, and they're disagreeing. It's, it's painful to watch because you don't really want to pick sides. You think they're both partly right. You think they're both partly wrong. You just want them to get along. And that's what we want, to get along. All right. So, in our passage right here, uh, we see Paul's admonition to us is in verses 2 through 4. That's where the ethical instruction is. But this whole passage, verses 1 through 11, is one protracted argument for unity. So, I know I've said it before, I love Oreo cookies. It's something that I got from Kay. Believe it or not, I never really ate Oreos until I married her. And over the course of nearly 20 years, she's filled me with her love of Oreo cookies. But in this passage, Paul basically makes his appeal, for lack of a better illustration, like an Oreo cookie, with the ethical instruction being that creamy filling in the middle. Okay? What do I mean? Well, he has his ethical instruction sandwiched between four common blessings that Christians share in common. And he uses those common blessings as an appeal to unity. And then after he provides his ethical instruction, he then provides us with the example of Christ with an implied promise of future blessings. So already received blessings, example of Christ and future blessings provide the sandwich for the cream of ethical instruction. All right? So... Let's look at this. There are three parts to this cookie. The first cookie is shared Christian blessings. Are y'all hungry now? All right, I'll try to speed it up. All right, right. Uh, shared Christian blessings. If you look with me at verse 1. Okay, if your version is the ESV, you see that it says if. It starts with if. So if. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Okay, he gives a list of four things. Now, the issue here is that in English, he's actually, it sounds like he's asking a question or, 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 or inquiring. And that's not the case. Actually, this is a Greek rhetorical construction where in the Greek language, it's, apparent, it's, it's abundantly clear that it's one of those times where in form, it sounds like it's an inquiry, but he's really providing an affirmative response that's implied. Kind of like when you say, you want to ha- go out for pizza, don't you? There's an implied, yeah, there. Well, he's doing that exact same thing for rhetorical flourish because he's an advanced thinking kind of guy. But if you take away the flourish, what he's basically saying is, since... There is encouragement from Christ because he's affirming the presence of it. So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, and since there is affection and sympathy, complete my joy. He appeals to four common blessings, four realities that Christians have in Christ. And I want to make three quick comments. First, each of these blessings comes to us 
from outside of ourselves. Think about it. Each and every one of us has experienced encouragement in difficult times from being in Christ. Each of us has felt the comfort that comes from knowing that God loves us. Each of us has experienced the blessing that comes from having the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are marked and sealed. We've all experienced this, but this comes from outside of ourselves. We all know that it's a gift. Now, since it's a gift, that implies that it was at the discretion of the giver to give it, or else it wouldn't have been a gift, right? So if the blessings that you have received in Christ are a gift to you that were given at his discretion, where then is there room for boasting? You didn't earn them. He gave it graciously, generously. And not only do we have them graciously and generously, but we have them in common. I've experienced the blessing of Christ. You've experienced the blessing of Christ. You've experienced the blessing of Christ. And that forms a common bond. We have something in common. Shared experiences forge bonds. We talked about that last week. But this week I was reminded I was invited to go to the VFW over in Ackworth to meet with some veterans. And veterans love getting together at places like the VFW or the American Legion because they have some common experiences, even if they never served together, even if they didn't serve in the same conflict. The shared experience of war creates a bond And it's not just soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines. It's us. We have experienced something in common. We've all experienced the relief that we have from the freedom that comes from having our sins washed away. So how on earth is there room then for arrogance? How? And second... We've received common blessings in Christ. Is it not possible, is it not likely, that people who've received common blessings and who've been put into a common place in a common time have been done so for a common purpose? I think it's highly plausible. The fact that we've all received these blessings in Christ and that we've been put together to share in those things implies that we have been given that for a shared purpose. This ought to call for unity. And third, if Christ, if Christ has given us all things, and if Christ has put us on a mission together, then where is there room for my own agenda? Where is there room for your agenda? There's not. So a shared Christian blessings call us to lay down our ego, to lay down our pride, to rejoice in our Savior, and to pursue the good of the group, the good of each other. So that's the one cookie. Okay? He appeals to their common shared experiences of grace as the first cookie. 
And now he fills the cream. All right, since you've had these things in common, complete my joy by being of one mind. You've all gone through the same stuff in terms of Christ. Be of one mind. In verse 2, he gives us a fourfold command. He tells us to be of like mind. He tells us to, uh, to have the same love, to be a full of cord. And then he says, of one mind again. He's reiterating it to say, be unified. Now, when you look at these words, the, the words themselves are, are pretty, they mean pretty much in Greek what they mean here. But one of the misconceptions is that he's calling for monolithic thought. They think that, one of, that what Paul's saying here is we have to all think the same thought literally. He's not calling us to be the Borg from Star Trek where all personality is eradicated and there's just this one thing where everybody thinks this. No. To use an illustration, if we were to buy carpet for this floor and we were to, and let's say, you know, we were to propose a color blue. It's not saying here that you have to suddenly like the color blue. You're allowed to like red. You're allowed to like green. What he is saying, though, is that we have to be united around a common, larger purpose that sees a greater good here than simply pursuing the right to have our color. And so we can try to persuade each other why red is better than blue or green is better than both, but the one-mindedness comes into play when we realize that we are all on the same team. And so once the decision has been made, we don't sit there bickering, I didn't get my way. You recognize the good of the group. Imagine what would happen on a football team. I like football better than baseball. I know it's baseball season, but forget it. It's football. Anyway, so you got the guys on the offense out there. The quarterback calls the play. And when a play is called, that implies specific tasks for each member of the offense, right? When the defense calls a play, that calls for specific actions on the part of each defensive player. So what would happen if after the quarterback calls the play, the right tackle suddenly decides, ah, I don't want to block. I don't want to protect the quarterback. I want to run downfield and try to catch a pass. What would happen at the snap if he just took off? The whole play would come to a crashing halt, wouldn't it? Single-mindedness allows us to remember that we each have a specific thing to do, but it's held in common by a great overarching goal. And if we are unified, brothers and sisters, we can do almost anything. I said it last week and I'll say it again. There is such talent here, such gifts and graces. This church could do almost anything if we will be unified. And then in verse 3, in the first half of verse 3, he gives us two things to avoid. And these two things are the great cancer of any relationship, whether it's in your home or whether it's in the church. Two things to avoid. 
selfish ambition, and in the ESV it says conceit. But I actually think the words of the old King James Version, does anyone have the King James here? What does it say instead of conceit? Okay, verse 3, the first 3. Vain glory. That is actually a closer translation of the Greek. And we're going to talk about that. But first, this selfish ambition, this strife, this pursuit of self. Man, sometimes selfish ambition just gets in the way. It's when we desire to advance our agenda or, or chase our interests at the expense or at the disregard of the people around us. You see it happen a lot on all-star teams. When there's all these celebrities, all these huge egos, and everyone wants their time in the light to show off how great they are. And what can oftentimes happen is that just, it actually hinders the team. I don't think there's any better example than in the 1980 Winter Olympics when the U.S. men's hockey team miraculously beat the Soviet Union. University of Minnesota coach Herb Brooks was hired to become the coach of the U.S. Olympic team, and he got a lot of people angry at first because he wasn't looking for the all-stars. He knew that a team of egos... A team of all-stars where everybody wanted to take their time in the light to show off their skills would lose. And yes, he wanted good players, but most importantly, he wanted people who would be a team. Selfish ambition. A great conductor was once asked, what is the hard position, hardest position in your symphony to find a good player for? You know what he said? Second chair violin. There is a whole host of people who are willing to play first violin. But finding someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that is hard to find. But second violin is absolutely essential for harmony. We want to be out front. We want to be playing first violin. We want to be the one who stands up and bows to the conductor and the conductor bows to us but we need people who are willing to play second chair violin. Selfish ambition will prevent you from doing that because you just want your way. Now, um, many churches suffer from people who just want to pursue their agenda and their interests. Many marriages struggle. Families struggle when people just want to pursue their interests and they don't really care about their spouse or their kids, or their parents, or their siblings. They're just about themselves, and we struggle. And, and it sounds really, really, really bad the way I'm presenting it, but usually it comes across so much more innocently. I mean, have you ever had a time where you're just convinced that something is for the good of a group? And if this will just happen, then everything will be better. And so you just take it upon yourself, or you've seen this person take it upon themselves, to just do it. They didn't ask anybody. They didn't check to see if everybody really thought the same. They just did it. 
And then they're surprised, they're insulted, they're, they're, they're indignant that these people just don't appreciate their efforts for this church and this family. Well, maybe it's because you had your idea and you were trying to foist it upon others. Not sinister, not insidious, but still selfish nonetheless. What happens, though, when we lay down our own agenda and say, hey, I'm going to use my talents, my time, my gifts, my graces for the pursuit of the good, and I'm actually going to let someone else be the chief. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the vainglory or conceit. Now, vainglory is a really good term. First of all, isn't it amazing? Isn't it kind of interesting that that one word vain, vanity, how that same word on the one hand means puffed up, having an overinflated sense of self, and on the other hand, it refers to something that is just meaningless, just a wisp, something that is ultimately futile. Isn't that interesting? So the Greek word translated vainglory by the King James Version is composed of two words. A word, the, the, the prefix means empty or lacking. And the second word means pride or glory. Lacking pride. Empty of pride. And so the word refers to two things and it points to two things. One, it points to the very nature of the glory being sought, that it is an empty thing. You think it's a main thing, but it's a nothing. But second of all, it speaks to the heart that is pursuing it. There's an emptiness there for glory. There's a hunger. There's an appetite for glory. Have you seen people that are driven by that? They're just scratching for glory. They are seeking. They are striving for recognition. They want their name famous. And they just have this insatiable appetite. They are hungry for it. And lo and behold, the very thing they're seeking is a nothing. It's empty. I think that's sad. And the antidote to this empty glory this thing that's passing, it's a wisp. Even if you have everything, it's gone. If you've ever been to Paris, you know that Napoleon, being the megalomaniac that he was, erected a statue to himself on almost every corner. It seems that way anyway, if you've ever been there. In every plaza, everywhere in public, there's a statue of Napoleon. Oh, there's Napoleon again. But pfft. Most people nowadays don't even know who he is. Napoleon who? It's gone. He died. He was exiled. Turned to dust. What did it get him? Nothing. Except reviled by future generations. Nothingness. Now the antidote to pride, to vain glory seeking, to selfishness is humility. And we need to think of others as more significant than ourselves. I think that's important. It says count. Count others 
more significant than ourselves. That's the latter half of verse 3. Count others. That word is so important because it means it, it, it's, that, it's, it's almost imputation language to credit to their account. So you may be rich and successful and popular and powerful and this other person may be someone that society says is, you know, a street person. And so by every sociological standard, you may be tempted to think they are not my equal, much less better than me. But he says, count others. Consider them as more significant than ourselves. This reflects upon how we are to interact with each other. I'm not the know-it-all. You're not the know-it-all. But when you speak to me, you are more significant than my own agenda. And so I ought to listen and see how we can come to agreement. And you with me, consider one another more significant than ourselves. It fuels our actions. And if we can actually do that, consider one another more significant than ourselves, it will transform our interactions. It will. So, Paul wants to encourage us to a different way of thinking. These proud Roman citizens who've climbed the social ladder, who are used to fighting for their rights, Paul wants to challenge them to a different way of thinking. And so, he basically calls them to imitate Christ, to play that old school game, follow the leader. Did you ever play follow the leader? You get in the line, and whoever's in front, they, they walk in a certain, they'll do certain things, and everyone walking by has to do the exact same thing, it's a game of imitation. And we are called to imitate Christ. Now, this is the amazing thing is uh, oftentimes, you know, we, we'll, we'll almost dismiss. We don't want to think about, oh, he's God. Of course he could do it. He's perfect. He's, uh, he's not really a good example for us. He's too perfect. Read the Gospels carefully. Everything that Jesus did for you and me on our behalf, he did in his humanity. So he is an example to us. But it's precisely because he was God that what he did is so astounding. We praise Jesus for being humble enough to come and die for us. And yet, how often do we violently resist the call to die to ourselves? In verses 5 through 11, Paul wants us to marvel at the incredible humility of Jesus Christ. He understands that you can preach a sermon about humility and just telling someone to be humble doesn't make people humble. You know what makes people humble? Adoring Christ. Adore your God. The greatest exercise and endeavor you can do is to study the nature and character of God. If you are a believer, it will refresh you. It will, it will revolutionize your thinking about all of reality. And in these verses here, Paul wants us to marvel at the remarkable humiliation of Christ. He was completely humiliated, and he did it for you and for me. Now, in these verses, verses one through or verses uh, five through nine. 
Paul wants to communicate the complete humility of Christ, and he does so with seven propositions. And we're going to walk through them very fast. He says, first, he was in the very form of God. Now, form is a Greek word that means, and by saying he's in the form of God, all those characteristics and traits that we would use to describe something and classify them as being in a category of things, this is what Jesus had. So he was in the category of God. So this is a verse that is ascribing to Jesus full deity and full equality with the Father. Okay? So he's completely equal with God. Boom, that's the starting point. Complete equality with God. Now, that is real power. That is real authority. That is real glory. The one who creates and sustains the universe by the word of his power, that is awesome. And if you have a reason then to promote your own agenda, to pursue your own goals, Jesus has it. And it's legit. Because he's God. But then, he starts these seven downward humiliative acts. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't feel the need to desperately clutch and cling on to his rights. How many things do we clutch and cling for? I, I have a right to respect. I have a right to honor. I have a right to obedience. I have a right to this, that, or the other. And it's mine. He had equality with God. And it wasn't so precious to him. No, I'm not going to give up my equality. He let it go. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That word, emptied himself. Uh, in, in the English Standard Version, it says he made himself nothing. I, I use the word empty because that's the word in the Greek. And People have wondered for millennia, what does that mean? He emptied himself. Does that mean he stopped being God? Does it mean he, what, what does it mean? How, how did Jesus stop being God and all that stuff? And people have missed the mark sometimes. They view the emptying himself as if it's a statement of being, that he stopped being something. But when you look at it in context, this is a plea for unity. And that Jesus had full equality with God and he gave it up to become a slave. To empty himself is not a statement of being. It's a a sociological statement referring to he set aside all the rights and prerogatives of his status of equality. He had the right to be treated like God. And he gave all that up. He gave a right to be absolutely free. And he subjected himself to the will of the Father, which is why he only says and he only does what the Father tells him. He empties himself of all that glory. And he takes the form of a servant, or specifically, a slave. He's born in the likeness of men, bees, found in human form, And then he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now notice that phrase there, to the point of death. That he became obedient to the point. The to the point part is sort of like the hyphen on a headstone. How the hyphen represents the life that's lived between the two points. He became obedient to the point 
of death refers to the fact that every single act he took in his life, every single time he made a decision, it was humiliation for him. Every time his parents, these lowly creatures of dust, told him to do something, and he, the infinite God of the universe, complied, that was an act of humbleness. Throughout his entire life, everything he did was an act of obedience to someone else's will. And that was humility, because he is in fact God. And so he's humble all the way up to his death. And then the last, the seventh, even to death on a cross. And of course, death on a cross is synonymous in their minds with being cursed and rejected by God. So look at this. At the beginning, he's equal with God. And at the low point, he's rejected and accursed by God. And he did this voluntarily. Voluntarily. The God of the universe gave up everything that he had legit and became nothing and accursed for us. So who am I? What do I have? When I'm called to lay down my ego, what ego do I legitimately have compared to the ego that Jesus legitimately had? What ego do you have? Jesus had an agenda he could have pushed if he'd wanted to. He submitted to the will of the Father. So who are you and I to push our agenda as if we're somebody? Jesus had rights, and he laid them down for your sake and for mine. So who are we to push ours? Who are we? in light of Jesus. The only one who's ever existed who had something real to brag about let himself be marked as accursed for us. That's astounding to me. And so this example of Christ that we're called to emulate provides the second cookie. Now the sweetness of it all is verses 9 through 11. How it's because of his obedience that he is now exalted back up to an even more lofty position than before. And isn't that the interesting way of the kingdom? That the way to glory is through obedience. We think that the way to glory is to have a ticker tape parade down Main Street. When in God's economy and in God's kingdom, the way to glory is an overgrown, rough path off to the side. We're told in verse Mark 10, sorry, in Mark 10, uh, 22, that if anyone would be great in the kingdom, he must become a servant. And then in Matthew 12, 23, 12, we're told that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So there's a little implication here You Philippians, you're all about getting glory, getting glory. Well, the way to get glory, like Jesus, is to completely submit yourself and be humble, and God rewards humility. Paul begins this passage in in verse 1 by reminding people of blessings already received. You've received blessing. And he concludes by reminding them of the exaltation of Christ for being humble, 
with the implied notion, this is the way to true blessing. We think that if I lay down my agenda, cease pursuing my good, that I'm just going to get trampled upon and taken, for, taken advantage of. God does not let that happen. Everything you endure, God will reward you for. You got, glo- you got benefits, you're going to get benefits. So right now, rest in those facts. Lay down your agenda, lay down your ego, and let's be united. If Jesus Christ can do that, then why can't we? Let's pray.